couldn't get Jamie Oliver um, to talk uh, nutrition, but we probably went someone a little bit more aligned to the uh, the sports side of things. We've got David Bryan, owner of Catalyst Dietitian, with us, and uh, David's coming on board as a partner with Australian Pitching Development. David, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a steep learning curve, learning about the nuances of uh, baseball. I do help out quite a lot of baseball players, but I'm, I'm, I'm not up to date with the, the push to bring the mound back because pitches have been dominating so far. So I've learned as much as you so far in our brief time together. It's good to hear that some of the nonsense that I spout off is, is sticking. So um, <clears throat> not a baseball guy, but someone who works with elite athletes. I'd be really interested, I suppose, just to kick off with your background, um, how you became or a dietitian, the sports you work with, the sports you participate in, and um, yeah, how long you've been doing it and why you do it. So I moved to Perth in 2007. Um, I went to St. Joseph's Nudgee College in Brisbane um, and loved every minute of being in that environment and obviously a bit of an elite sport environment. And then I moved to Perth the first year out of school and you could say I didn't really know anyone. So all I really had was, um, was running and slowly I got into my running a little bit more and started my commerce degree at UWA and one semester in quickly found out that wasn't for me. Um, so then I went down the line of personal training and did my personal training course and the um, personal training coordinator was studying nutrition at Edith Cowan uh, University and all of a sudden that just all made sense. I don't know why I didn't think of it before but yeah it took for someone to um, recommend that and he planted the seed and yeah food's always been a big part of my family. Um, all my childhood memories are you know, the, the dinner table, enjoying beautiful food, and my dad's a massive cook, um, can't do anything by the halves, so um, yeah, got to um, enjoy really beautiful food growing up as a kid, and yeah, threw myself in the deep end at ECU, um, to be a sports dietitian is a five-year master's degree, um, which also involves a lot of chemistry and biology, which I never studied at school, still don't know how I, how I got through it, but somehow I did, and uh yeah, 10, 12 years later, here I am as an advanced sports dietitian and love every minute of it. Um, I'm, a, uh, I'm passionate about being a sports dietitian and as I like to say, I'm a dietitian because I love food, not because I hate it. A lot of people see dietitians as, you know, the food police and, you know, you go out to a dinner party and you tell people um, that you're a dietitian and they sort of look at you funny and think, oh, is it okay if I have a beer in front of you or chips in front of you and that sort of thing and you know, it's the complete opposite. You know, I enjoy all those sort of foods as much as anyone else, if not more. Um, I just, I guess I've got the art of moderation in check a little bit better than a lot of people and a lot of athletes in particular. And there is a chemical imbalance with you because you're deeply involved in triathlon and everyone I've met who does triathlon is crazy in some way, shape or form. But is that, that's your sport of choice at the moment? Yeah, you could say triathletes are very all or nothing, <laughs> very all or nothing. Um, long story short, with my triathlon background, when I moved to Perth, that's how I just slowly started to get into triathlon a little bit more. Um, you could say triathlons, or Perth is one of the, the meccas of triathlon in Perth, in, in Australia, if not the world. Um, and over the last sort of five years, I've been on a journey towards qualifying for the Paralympics. Um, I was born with a club foot um, and over the years my left leg, my stronger leg, developed much more than my right to the point when I was 15 they realised I had about an inch and a quarter leg length difference 
three size shoe difference and about a 15 to 20% difference in calf muscle mass. Um, so I missed out on Rio um, Paralympics by about 2%. Um, again, long story short, it was a very subjective classification system back then being in its infancy so classifying your disability or yeah so there's about five different classes in triathlon at the paralympics um you've got the obvious ones like vision impaired and wheelchair athletes and then you've got um below and above knee amputees and then you've got my class which i sort of define as the bits of class um i'm basically racing people with hand impairments so like they might not have a hand or a few fingers or something like that or someone like myself with a club foot or a leg impairment so yeah it's been a steep um trajectory the last three years i finally got classified two to three years ago and got thrown straight into the deep end with the elite triathlon australia team and now based at the wa institute of sport and unbeknownst to me i squeezed in a few international races um right before the world stopped with covid and was lucky enough to get enough points pre the the COVID crisis and um, classified for Tokyo and yeah, I'm now flying out to Tokyo in a week's time to uh yeah to hopefully chase a medal and tackle the beautiful heat in Tokyo. Um, not many people knew before the Olympics, but have probably since realised uh, Tokyo's forecast to be the hottest ever Olympics. Um, and yeah, I did the test event two years ago um, in Tokyo, and when you factor in heat, humidity, radiation. Um, you know, the heat bouncing off the road, that sort of thing. We're looking at apparent temperatures of sort of 50 degrees. Um, and even the water um, is about 30 to 32 degrees, which for a normal race almost wouldn't go ahead. It's it's that hot. Um, so, yeah, the last two years I've pretty much lived in the heat chamber at the WA Institute of Sport, um, acclimatising to the heat. And hopefully that's one of my big weapons, um, being acclimatised to the heat as, as well as a few pre-cooling and nutrition strategies that I'll be applying on race day in Tokyo. And what about training to dive around the boat they leave right at the start <laughs> line? Yeah, I've never seen that happen before. Stick disaster. I've never seen that happen before. I think the Japanese being very precise, the, the boat driver probably just wanted to get the best possible camera shot. And yeah, I think it's pretty hard to stop a boat sometimes and you just got too close. So um, what's... How... How big and how busy is the sport dietitian space? Are, are more and more athletes looking into this area as, an, as a competitive advantage? Or has it grown or is it is it stable or is it growing? What's the what's the lay of the land? Well, interestingly, probably only three to four percent of sports or dietitians in general are male. Um, so, yeah, I've always um, stood out in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's an ever-growing space and, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if you wanted to become a, an elite athlete, thinking about your diet was probably the, you know, the last frontier um, or something that, you know, only the very elite athletes um, would seek, you know, your expertise for. But, you know, now I'm seeing all different um, types of athletes, whether that is Australia's best athletes in, you know, various sports or, you know, school-age kids that are just trying to, you know, tackle school and juggle sport head on so you've been in the space for i think you said about 10 years <clears throat> what's that evolution been like like how um you know we talk about strength and conditioning in baseball like it went from a, a highly touted prospect went to the u.s without having ever lifted weights before mm -hmm. to now every single kid is doing that stuff before they go so from a nutrition point of view how's how's the space evolved um from an understanding 
the science and the application. I think athletes definitely appreciate how important nutrition is much better um, compared to 10 years ago. Um, but from a dietitian prescription perspective, we've probably relaxed a little bit compared to 10 years ago. Oh, right. And, you know, the example I give, you know, 10 years ago, if you had a dietitian on the pool deck or the sporting field with a team, you know, the moment um, that athlete stepped off the field or out of the pool, they'd probably be shoving a, a protein shake or something like that down their throat saying, oh, if you don't get this fuel in within that that beautiful 15 to 30 minute window, then, you know, the session's gone and you're not going to make any gains. Whereas now we've probably realised that as long as you're getting some sort of refuel strategy in within 30 to 60 minutes, you're probably still going to get all the adaptations that you're after. And yeah, rather than being so prescriptive in terms of you must have exactly 120 grams of chicken at this point in time, it's it's more about developing habits and lifelong sustainable ha- habits that athletes can follow rather than like a, a spe- specific seven-day nutrition plan whereby if you don't have chicken stir-fry on a Wednesday night, the it's, it, it's all over. So, you know, whilst I do provide plans for athletes, I think my biggest strength is education and focusing on habits and how to time your food pre and post training, depending on the, the session type. So for the, you know, the layman like myself, what, and I don't know how to best articulate this, but how me as an athlete going to play sport with, without a good nutrition plan versus me as an athlete going to play sport with a good nutrition plan, what is the difference in performance that you one could expect from doing those things properly? So nutrition is probably not going to make you, but it could potentially break you. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of uncontrollables in life in terms of work-life balance, family, kids, social. There's so many variables in life these days. But to me, the one thing we can control is food. And to me, if we get food right, not only physically, but also mentally, we're best best prepared to to tackle the day head on. Mm. The, um, The... I guess the thing that I always find quite interesting as well, particularly if you're working with young athletes, is how do you, you know, most of the time it's mum cooking a meal and it's not to be discriminatory. There's lots of dads who cook as well. But, you know, from my generation, you sort of eat what I can cook and those types of things. How do you integrate an athlete's diet into their family environment? That must be one of the biggest challenges, getting the whole family to either change or adapt or try and see it for the benefits that it delivers. Yeah, and one of the main goals with the plans that I give an aspiring athlete, whether them, the, the athlete being a parent themselves or um, a child, is to integrate it into the family routine. Um, one habit that I'm really big on in that family environment is always having that communal veg and salad bowl on the table um, so that if, if an athlete does have an easier training day, for example, instead of just loading their plate with the big spaghetti bolognese that's for dinner, um, at least they can assign half to three cores of their plate, vegetable salad derived, and still have a little bit of spaghetti bowl to go with it. Or on the flip side, if they do have a big training day, that's an opportunity where it m- might be a bit more carbohydrate, protein based, and taper off the vegetables and salad. But yeah, we don't need to we don't need to complicate things. Like people come to me expecting they're gonna you know have all these recipes that they must follow to the nth degree, where it's the exact opposite. I'm just all about if anything, manipulating your plate each day from a vegetable carbohydrate protein perspective to achieve your performance and recovery goals. And with that, body composition will be achieved along the way as well. And from what you're saying, 
it doesn't sound like feeding an elite athlete is this massive spike in cost either because you've just mentioned salads and pastas. They're not necessarily expensive things to produce. You might need to eat more if you're young and growing, but that to me doesn't sound like there's this massive overhaul of the whole family uh, grocery bill. Yeah, it always frustrates me when there's that perception that it's expensive to eat healthy um, because it's the exact opposite. Like if you go to a you know local fruit and veg grocer or a local farmer's market, for example, you know mo- most of the produce is going to be 2 to $10 per kilo. Whereas if you go to the supermarket and walk down anything packaged or processed aisle and you actually look at the unit price per kilo, because it's now law for the unit price per kilo to um, be outlined, we're looking at 10 20 30 40 50 dollars a kilo for mm. chips lollies that sort of thing um so yeah it's certainly not expensive to eat healthy mm. um so the i guess that's the, probably the i don't want to get to the misnomers of diet because i want to get to that sort of towards the back end but it's that it's probably that barrier of oh you know my kid's gonna go and we're gonna engage a nutrition dietitian um i'm gonna have to study in chicken breasts and you know that's not what i like to eat so it sounds to me like you can continue living your normal life. You just have to be conscious of the proportions and the, the, the makeup of what it is that you're eating. That seems to be the biggest message here. Exactly right. And aware of what your training goals and demands are that day. I'm not pro-carb, anti-carb. I'm not pro-fat, anti-fat or high-protein, low-protein. I'm just about fueling for the work required, which, you know, fueling for the work required, if you do a Google search of that, that's probably the most famous nutrition saying in the last 10 years which basically highlights that the greater the intensity, the greater the carbohydrate demand. So on those high-intensity training days, whether that be an endurance athlete or someone that's in the gym pushing intensely in the gym or a pitcher, for example, that's really explosive with their movements, that's certainly a day where carbohydrates need to have a bit more of a focus. Um, Whereas on the flip side, if it's an easier training day, um, particularly if you're training less later in the day, that's an opportunity whereby we could taper off our carbohydrate portion and, like I said before, make your meal a bit more protein, vegetable, salad-derived. And, yeah, the amount of times people come to me asking, you know, is it is it fat or is it carbs? The answer's both, you know. Um, I've run up to 40K in the past without any fuel um, because I can tap into my fat stores for fuel at those lower intensities. Um, whereas tomorrow morning, you know, I'm going to be doing quite a high-intensity um, interval session um, on the running track, um, and that's very carbohydrate focused before for it to maintain intensity, but also after training to replenish muscle glycogen stores to also maximize recovery. Mm. So, what are some of the uh, the one I threw at you offline, but I'm sure you hear this all the time is uh, you know, a young person, I just can't put on weight. I eat lots, but I can't put on any weight. Like, what are some of the I'd love to go through a handful of kind of just bullshit. <laughs> terms yeah, sure. you hear and mm-hmm. and just shoot them down so i'll start with that one i just i eat but i can't put on weight like how do you how do you pick those off for young people yeah so when when athletes want to put on size um, muscle mass gain weight usually too often they do focus on protein um, and it's very easy to achieve your protein requirements um, if anything i've probably never seen a protein deficiency our, our perception of how much protein we need is is very distorted um in terms of something we could do better from a protein um, point of view is distribute our protein more evenly across the day. For example, you see an athlete having Vegemite on toast for breakfast, obviously not much protein there. A piece of fruit for morning tea, not much protein there. A sandwich with not much protein in the sandwich, not much protein there. Very minimal between lunch and dinner, 
and then dinner because they want to supposedly gain muscle mass is a big 300 gram steak so you can kind of see how that's not really distributing your protein evenly across the day um but yeah going back to um increasing weight it's that total energy that we also need to to think about and all too often for whatever reason young athletes are you know preoccupied with work and school and not really having much between breakfast lunch lunch and dinner and realistically if you're only eating three times a day it's not only going to be hard to meet your energy requirements but also your nutritional requirements as well so um, grazing across the day is is really important and that that doesn't mean it has to be extreme in terms of eating eight ten times a day like you think a bodybuilder does it's just about that consistency mm. and even distribution across the day and i do not want to come across as being completely ignorant but i'm assuming I mean, this could be incorrect but a you know a teenage boy is a metabolism machine so they're just burning energy constantly so they need to eat to match that but they wouldn't have a clue this sort of energy levels they're burning in, in, in the first place right yeah, and what, what a lot of adolescents don't realise is just how much energy their body requires every day for everyday bodily function, i.e. base metabolic rate. So, you know, if you compare someone like yourself that's a little bit older than an adolescent. Jacked, though. <laughs> um, you know, if if yourself and an adolescent just, just sat in a room all day and looked at each other and did completely nothing, um, an adolescent's energy requirements to keep their organs pump, uh, functioning heart pumping, um, improve bone remodeling, uh, Im- promote immune function, just keep the body in check, could be twice that of your mm. energy requirements. And that's on top of all the, not only the extra training they do, but all that incidental exercise in terms of being on their feet all day at school. And yeah, it really does It really does add up. So so I'm, I'm just guessing most young people have n- just no clue around that. So they think I eat three meals a day and I can't put on any weight. In fact, I lose weight. It's because you're burning your natural amount plus your training and you're not even getting close to replenishing your energy. Yeah, like I had an elite backstroker come see me yesterday that, you know, was was not far off the um, the Olympic qualifying time at the Australian trials and, you know, he's only eating three times a day. Um, and, you know, his remark was that, you know, he didn't feel like eating so often and, you know, I made the mention of, well, sometimes eating mindfully as an athlete is a little bit different to eating mindfully as, say, a sedentary office worker. You know, as an athlete with big energy requirements, there's going to be times and times in your day where you probably don't feel like eating, but you know it's in your best interest to eat something because of the, the training session ahead or the training session that you've just done. So I don't know if this is a misnomer, but what about fluid consumption, you know, optimal time like the optimum amount of water but also finish an activity got to suck down a powerade or something like that you know you see every kid head toward the canteen after a match and you're sucking down a powerade and where what where are we right or wrong in that space yeah i don't know where the two liters of fluid a day really came from um just because for example perth climate is so different to the queensland climate and different seasons and that sort of thing generally speaking if your wee is on the clearer side you're hydrated enough um but if it is on the darker side it probably is a sign that you need to drink that that little bit more if anything lately i'm recommending athletes and this is all context again to if to, to drink slightly less later in the day if it improves their sleep um you see a lot of sporting teams now such as like afl teams that um have evening games um some teams will actually discourage excessive fluid drinking after a match um because it affects 
players sleep, you know, they're up all night, go in the toilet, that sort of thing. So they'd much rather they went to bed slightly dehydrated um, if it meant that they got a, a better night's sleep. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But, um, you know, going back to like, you know, Powerade before or after or during a training session, um, definitely beneficial before to ensure that you start the training session well hydrated, um, but particularly during a session um, so that um, you obviously stay hydrated, top up electrolytes, but there's also new research surrounding the benefit of carbohydrate mouth rinse. Um, so if we put it in like a baseball context, um, you know, even though in the space of say a one hour period whereby you're on and off the field, you only have very small sips of say Powerade or Gatorade, it's not so much the amount of sports drink that's having a performance benefit. It's just that small presence of sugar in the mouth whereby the taste receptors are actually talking to the brain and the brain's actually convinced that it's getting adequately fed, even though in the grand scheme of things, it's a very small amount. And that's that perception from the brain is actually lifting mood and therefore improving performance. So if you flip it back to like what I was doing in the pool this morning, getting belted in the pool, doing 50 and 200 meter race pace efforts, um, in between efforts, I was having very small swishes of sports drink, not so much to get more carbohydrates in, but just for that stimulatory right. effect. And then in terms of fluid post-training, um, your best friend's actually milk after training. You know, they've done studies comparing milk, water and sports drink, um, looking at what rehydrates your best after training and milk trumps all. Not to mention that milk is a natural electrolyte. It's a top up of calcium um, and it's got the perfect blend of carbohydrates and protein after training, which is a three to one ratio. So, yeah. Some athletes may have heard it, you know, the, the old chalky milk benefits, um, whether it's chocolate milk, flavoured milk, a Milo, a milk with protein powder, it really is your best friend after a training session. Yeah, I'm glad we're not filming these. I've just sat here with this dumbfounded look on my face. So how much milk are we talking Would you'd consume after a training session? One to two cups, so yeah, 250 right. to 500 mils. Um, again, you know, for example, I was in the heat chamber this morning, probably lost about one and a half to two litres of fluid in that session this morning. Um, and by far the best thing I could have had this morning was, was milk and I had a bit of protein powder just to top up protein stores. But yeah, all you needed is flavoured milk or, or Milo or something like that. And it's literally the complete blend of um, carbohydrates, protein, electrolyte, and it's going to rehydrate you better. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, right, on to the next one. Um, supplements, you know, protein, you just mentioned protein powders, but protein shakes, pre-workout, got to get if you want to get bigger and stronger, you've got to be all over those <laughs> things. Yeah, so the analogy I use with supplements is it's just the sprinkles on top of the icing on, on top of the cake. Um, it doesn't matter how good the, the protein supplement is. If the foundation of your diet isn't adequate, it's really got no benefit. And again, like protein powder, for example, it's all about context. Like this morning, um, I had to go straight from training to get a COVID test before I fly out. And I knew there was going to be a bit of time between finishing training and actually getting home for lunch. So the protein shake with the milk was a really adequate option. Whereas if an athlete is doing a home workout and, you know, their kitchen's 10 metres away from their home gym and they've got access to milk, yoghurt, cereal, toast, eggs, etc., a, a supplement's not needed. So, um, yeah, um, it's all about context in terms of pre-workout. Your best friend really is caffeine. You know, it wasn't that long ago that caffeine was on the banned substance list. Um, and, you know, caffeine liberates your fat stores for fuel, decreases the perception of pain, improves alertness, improves performance. So straight away I can see how that has a positive 
effect with the baseball field, whether you're a pitcher, outfielder, or um, or hitter. Mm. Well, I sit here and crush coffee and have milk in it, so I've just ticking all the boxes today. Yeah, winning. <laughs> What's um, they're three from me. What other kind of boneheaded stuff do you tend to hear in your circles? You'd have to have some well, good ones there. Yeah, where where do I start? I guess. Um, salt's probably a big one. Good, um, bad. Probably good. Um, you know, we live in a hot climate, and if anything, people steer away from from salt these days because they think it's bad from 20, 30 years ago. But um, if if you're more active than the sedentary person, you not only need more energy, but you also need more salt as well to replenish the sodium that you're losing in your sweat. And if you're just losing sodium constantly and just rehydrating with just water, you don't have any sodium in your cells to retain that fluid. So from a practical perspective on your bigger training days or your more sweatier days, adding salt to your pre-training fuel, but also your post-training fuel is going to maximise hydration. Mm, okay. Any others that kind of get thrown your way? Um, Give me one more. I had something in my head, but I've just forgotten. It'll come back to me. Um, cramps. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you about cramps. Yeah, why do we cramp? I always thought it was lack of – I thought it was lack of salt. You're probably not fit enough. Oh, okay. Well, I don't cramp, so I'm fine. <laughs> Um, so actually the main reason we cramp is what we call exercise-associated muscle cramping. Um, so, you know, let's again put it in a baseball context. You know, it's a 35-degree day. It's the last innings. You've never thrown that many times in a game before. Um, your muscles start to fatigue. Probably not so much because of a, a salt or a magnesium balance, but just because your body's not conditioned to throw that many times for that prolonged period. Um or the other example I get is, you know, a marathon runner or a triathlete says, oh, you know, I was racing really well. I was swim, bike, running harder than I ever have before in training. And then the last K, I, I cramped in my calf. Um, you know, kind of makes sense that maybe your body was just pushed to the limit, pushing much harder than what they do in training. So then the muscles didn't fire as well. So being as conditioned as you can to the, the task at hand for your sport is probably your, your greatest um aspect of reducing the risk of cramp the second reason is probably car carbohydrate inadequacy which again makes complete sense that if you're not fueling adequately before and during the actual session or the game or the race um, there's no adequate glycogen in your muscles for fuel so then the muscles don't fire as well so then it um, cramps and then thirdly but interestingly the evidence is still pretty mixed is electrolyte imbalance it's you know it certainly still makes sense to um, stay well hydrated so that your muscles fire but yeah the evidence is is pretty mixed and you know magnesium for example there's there's no there's no evidence at all um interestingly the ais has just released their supplement framework um breaking um supplements into category a b c and d a being supplements that have the most benefit from a research perspective down to c and d with little to none and magnesium's in C. Yeah, right. Yeah, you just everyone. destroyed the banana yeah. industry. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so this is the other bit I'm interested in touch on. So, and I've got young kids and you, you, it's obvious kids are in worse shape now than they were back in my day. <clears throat> now, that's obviously comes to lifestyle and diet. But if you come across an athlete who you can see just doesn't have a good base, how hard is it to take a youngster and – 
kind of reshape them or sort of reprogram um, their pathway, so to speak. Yeah, it always helps to have the parents on board and promote the right family environment at home. I'd like to think I just roll with the punches as best I can. Um, I like to come up with foods that they're comfortable with eating consistently across their day and, and work from there. I'm, I'm really big on front-ending the day. Um, that's probably my number one saying in nutrition um, because every meal sets itself up for better choices and outcomes at the next meal. So if we start the day right, you know, physically we're, we're going to be at our peak um, from a training perspective, but, you know, nutrition – the importance of nutrition and its effect on school performance is always forgotten as well. What we've got to keep in mind is our brain's primary source of fuel is carbohydrates. And, you know, if we're sending a kid off to school without any breakfast and they're getting thrown the maths, the science subjects first thing in the morning, then it's no wonder that they can't concentrate. And then it's no wonder that they go straight to the canteen and make a poor choice at recess. And you can kind of see how it's just a downward spiral for the rest of the day. And then they're largest meal or 80% of their intake is consumed, you know, that one or two hours just before they go to bed when they're least active. Mm. So, yeah, going back to getting the basics right and starting the day well, I'm really big on. So if a young athlete <clears throat> decides, look, I need to, you know, I want to be an elite athlete, so a diet is a big part of that, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, an athlete's like, I'm not happy with physically where I'm at, I want to make some changes. Can you step me through, like, what is a – what does a consultation with you look like? What what would what's a parent and an athletics? What should they expect if they come and see you? You're not doing skin folds and all that kind of medieval type stuff. I'm guessing. Yeah, no, skin folds is is quite medieval. I, I've I've done the course many a times, but to me, there's just too many variables, and to me, it just creates too much anxiety and stress around the consultation. Um, so yeah, when people come to see me, it's all about me getting an, an understanding of what their training looks like, but how food fits into the to their day, what their preferences are and how we can work from there. So then we sit down and do a full nutrition review and I'll get an athlete to run me through a normal day of eating and also talk to me about, you know, what commitments they have across their day in terms of school or training and work and that sort of thing. Um, how many people lie about their um, their consumption? Uh, you'd, you'd be amazed what people tell you as a dietitian. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I feel like sometimes I should be a psychologist, the, the things that people tell me. Um, but, yeah, people are pretty pretty honest. Yeah, okay. Um, which, which, is, which makes my life easier. And, yeah, we'll do a full nutrition review. Um, I use a, fo- a food program called um, Foodworks, which allows me to see that full dietary analysis from a micronutrient perspective as well as macronutrients to see their full energy intake. And, yeah, when you show the graphs to an athlete to see how deficient – their diet is for example that's usually a big motivator and then that's when i provide the education um so that they can you know apply those practical nutrition strategies across their day you mentioned your dad was a very generous cook my mum lived by the credo why feed five people when you could feed 15 yeah we're over consumers right so how big of a battle is that when you sort of start meeting a family and you know they serve it up and you just they're just double the amount of food they actually need there not 99% of the time from the athletes or any general population I've seen, particularly that are over-consuming later in the day, if you go back to what they're consuming earlier in the day, and it's it's pretty strong, that correlation. Um, so if you're making the right choices and, like I said, front-ending the day, naturally you're going to make the right decisions later in the day and portion control is going to be much better managed as well. And, and when it comes to – and I've got young kids as well, and the first thing they try and – 
grab in the mornings of cornflakes and stuff like that. Like, what's a good what's a good carb breakfast you could put onto a kid that they're not going to roll their eyes at? And so, I again rolling with the punches if they're that adamant on cornflakes, I'd encourage. Oh no, no, no! There's <laughs> just what's there. Yeah, but yeah. Like, what's what's an easy carb win? So I'm, I'm massive on sourdough bread. Yeah. Um, you know, for those that don't know, a sourdough culture is basically a live bacteria. Um, and each day the baker feeds that bacteria to keep the bacteria alive, but that bacteria also gives the bread flavour, and that bacteria also breaks down the gluten in bread to make it much more digestible when we go to eat it. Not to mention sourdough is very tasty and very dense, so it's much more satisfying than any supermarket bread. And then that's where I encourage athletes to get adventurous with with what with what they put on top of their toast so i'm really big on toast toppers so always think some sort of protein healthy fat ideally some fruit or vegetables on top so you know something that springs to mind is say ricotta cheese with like a tomato bruschetta olive oil salt pepper or maybe like peanut butter with cottage cheese sliced banana eggs avocado smoked salmon um philadelphia cheese like yeah you know there's there's so many different options that we can have and um yeah moving away from just jam and Vegemite and honey on toast because it doesn't really provide much of a nutritional value. But on the flip side, you know, going back to that buzzword context, like jam, Vegemite or honey on toast, an hour or two before a training session or a game is a really optimal choice because it's light on the stomach, it's easy to digest and it's predominantly carbohydrates. So it's what we want before that training session. So again, it's all about context. So what's the optimal time to consume prior to a sporting event or a training activity? What you're most comfortable with is the short answer. Um, what we've got to keep in mind is the gut's highly trainable and that's what most research is centred around these days with athletes that get, have gut issues. Um, uh, what we found is the gut is basically a working muscle group. So the more that we train our gut to have this slice of toast 30, 60, 90 minutes before training, the more adapted it becomes to digesting it and not having any gut issues. You see it a lot in, um, you know, triathlon and running whereby athletes get gut, gut upset in the event because they're trying to take on board food and fluid and their gut's just not used to it because mm. they never trial it in training. And then come race day when they're racing harder than ever and trying to take on more food than ever, it just sort of overwhelms the gut. Mm. So, yeah, in the endurance space in particular, you'll see athletes do race simulations whereby they're not only training at that specific pace but also taking on board the, the f- food and fluid they're going to be doing for race day as well. So if you apply it to a, a baseball context, um, you know, trialling some snacks that they could see themselves having during a game um, on, um, on their training days mm. as well. So just kind of going back to that sort of interaction with you as you know, young an athlete coming into the fold. So they, they go through this process. You look at what they're consuming, start talking about the mix and whatnot. When, you know, what we're like nowadays, we're impatient. We want results immediately. Like when, what's a realistic time for an athlete to start seeing change? What What's the goal in mind, I guess? <laughs> okay, well, I'll give you a So I'm a... 16 year old boy i can't i want to put on well i want to get bigger i want to add some muscle mass mm-hmm. um i've come to see you i clearly wasn't consuming enough so mm-hmm. adding more energy to the mix i'm lifting weights yep when should i start to see some changes so usually their diet's pretty poor yep so if we go from a pretty poor diet to what i call just a a more um regular 
eating pattern, we can make some pretty significant changes. I always aim for sort of 250 to 500 grams of gain per week, whether that be from a weight loss point of view or muscle mass gain point of view. Um, and again, you know, no one meal is going to make you, nor is it going to break you exactly like training. Um, what you did last night's not going to define your baseball career. It's just about adding layers on top of each other to put you in the right direction. So then, so then a, a family engages you to work with their athlete. What, how often are they checking in? What does that process look like? And what does your mentoring involve typically? Yeah. So usually we catch up two to three weeks after the initial consultation, not so that I can crack the whip and tell them how good or bad that they've gone. Um, but just so that how, how I can see what's working well and what's not with the plan. And then that's when we sort of start to string things out that little bit more after that. Mm, okay. Um, I kind of think you've covered everything that I wanted to cover. Is it true you should still eat a big bowl of pasta the night before an event or is that just another misnomer that... Well, if you're carbo-loading specifically for an endurance event, probably over at least an hour long, um, you actually can't meet that carbohydrate requirement through just that one dinner alone. Right. Or if you do, you're going to feel pretty awful after that dinner and then affect your sleep and compromise your performance potentially the next day. So it's about grazing across the day with carbohydrates at all meals and with potentially less of a protein, vegetable, salad focus. Okay, so you've just pumped milk, blown up bananas, <laughs> the uh, bread industry's about to rebound and uh, yeah, you've blown up, don't eat a big bowl of pasta the night before an event. So um, I'll also oh. stand up for potatoes as well. Ah, okay, there we go. So potatoes have more vitamin C than blueberries, more potassium than bananas. And only a third of the carbohydrates is rice or pasta. Oh, look, there we go. And a white potato has less sugar than a sweet potato as well. So it always drives me nuts when people go on these health kicks and have sweet potato everything. And personally, I think a white potato tastes way better than a sweet potato anyway. Okay. Well, that's why you're one of our partners. Um, <laughs> we'll have links through to you when we launch uh, the website. When can we expect to see you competing in Japan? 29th of August, so that's a Sunday. Um, if you're from Perth, that'll be 7.30 WA time or 9.30 Eastern Standard time. So we start at 8.30 um, local Tokyo time. So, yeah, the humidity and the heat will well and truly be up there and you'll you'll probably see me with ice vests on. I'll be ingesting um, pre-race sports drink slushies before the race to bring my core body temp down as much as I can internally. Um, and we've even got these special headbands. I that was just about to ask, what is the what's the headband on the on the website we've got? You wearing a um, yeah, it's black basically like this. It's this special rock that retains, I guess, the the cool um, temp as more optimally than you know traditional fabrics. So we're going to have these headbands dunked in ice um, for each lap on the course, and I'll be grabbing one of those headbands each time I I go around. Yeah, right, and. Uh, What's, what are you sort of what are you holding yourself to? What, what are your expectations in terms of a finish? Well, I'm not going just for the tracksuit. Um, I'm up against ten, you know, truly world class athletes that if you know they race at local races here, they they still probably come top five in the state. Um, you know, they're predicting sort of 57 minutes 30 is going to get you a medal at Tokyo, and just recently I went 58 minutes in Queensland, sort of time trialing myself in a big heavy training week. So. You never know what could happen on the day, particularly when it's going to be so hot. And, yeah, there's certainly some faster athletes than me out there. Um, but it being so hot, you know, you think that's going to slow them down a little bit. And 
yeah, who knows what will happen. So, well, well, yeah, we'll be watching. So, uh, thank you very much. We'll check in with you again and uh, good luck. Thank you.